You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another exciting episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always today, your friend and mine from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing great. Now that this time I thought ahead, stopped at my gas station for some coffee, rather than having to come all the way here to the north side where you live and go to your scumbag gas station here. Uh, well, let me ask you a question, though. Does the gas station on your side of town offer Kino machines? No, that's probably one of the reasons Boom, we're able to keep go. the scumbags out. So you go to a gas station that offers you no chance whatsoever to pad your pocket with a little bit of extra change on your way out the door. <laughs> they, we got scratchers at my gas station. <laughs> it's just not the same, man. It's not the same as video gambling entertainment. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's one where, hey, if you have a system, you stand to really cash in. Yeah, no, just make a cross and pick two random numbers. and it pays, Don't tell everyone your system, out, man. It pays out every time. Oh, uh, well. Every time. You're fucked now. And by every time, I mean almost never. <laughs> uh, well, as usual, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, Jose Aldo proves his greatness all over again. And all over again, Frankie Edgar is now a man without a country. In round number two... Alistair Overeem showed up to UFC 156 looking smaller, softer, less punishing, and less dangerous. Almost as if his training for this fight lacked a little something. What do you mean? I don't know. It's probably just a coincidence. Uh, we'll talk about it. In round number three, the UFC it says it's going to start keeping its own official rankings, but does that seem like more trouble than it's worth? All that, plus Sir Nigel Longstock is in the house once again to lead us all in another round of Master Tweet Theater... We're going to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me and Just Saying Stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, it's listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Mark Runza. And let me say before I read this that Ben Folks and your interview with Mike Dolce garnered a lot of mail to the podcast this week. A lot of which was really good. And, it you know, we could have just picked any of them. Yeah. Almost. And uh, so we picked this one. Mark Runza writes... After reading my folks interview with Mike Dolce, which I feel like is a weird construction and, and <laughs> yes. makes you wonder if like if Mark Runza thinks he owns you in some way. Maybe he does. Maybe everyone owns a piece of me. I was very disappointed, not in the article, but with Dolce. He seemed to be sticking up for the guys he represents over the TRT issue. Initially, I found or I thought he was going to say, look. I know it's not the perfect scenario, and I'm against it, but these fighters make their own decisions, sometimes against my advice. However, Mr. Earth-Grown Nutrients himself suddenly thinks it's okay to stick artificial testosterone in you. I find this to be a massive contradiction in everything he has been banging into our brains for the past two years. Do you think anyone is going to ever be honest about TRT? Because at the moment, the only person I trust is Victor Conte, and that's saying something. Yeah, I was surprised. Too. That's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to Mike Dolce about it, because when I heard that you know he was kind of a vocal supporter of TRT, it does seem uh, contradictory to all his other stuff about that you should be getting as much as possible from food, that he says the first thing he does when he works with fighters is gets them off the powders, potions, and pills, um, and then to be you know sticking a needle in your ass and injecting testosterone, that seems like the exact opposite kind of philosophy that you would expect from him. Uh, to me, it seems like, and you know, I don't expect 
him to really admit this, but it seems to me like he's got to be influenced by the people he works with uh, and the idea of the people he'd like to work with in the future, that kind of stuff. I mean, he works with Chael Sonnen, uh, works with Vitor Belfort, who may or may not uh, be on that TRT. So, I don't know. It seems to me like if you're in a tough situation like Mike Dolce is in there, uh, you gotta find, You maybe can't be an absolutist about all this stuff and still have enough clients to pay your bills. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, I don't. I and you know what? I like Mike Dolce. I've always me liked too. him. He seems smart, and he, he seems is. like when you when you listen to him talk, and certainly from your interview with with him, which I would say to the podcast listener, if you haven't read it yet, check it out. It's it's pretty good. It's interesting. Uh, it's a little bit lengthy, but I think it it, you know, it earns here you that. Go. I think I think it earns that. It earns the right to be that long. When you read that interview, like he either comes off as like kind of naive about the process, or like he he genuinely believes in it. And I think like you and Mark Runza imply, I think it probably is because he's trying to you know justify either to himself or to other people that so many of his clients seem to get involved with this process. And actually, I would say. I think that Mark Runza comes up with what is probably a better response for Mike Dolce uh, when he says that he should just kind of say that he knows it's not perfect and that he's against it. But sometimes, you know, fighters are their own men and they're going to do what they want to do ultimately. You know, he didn't put it that plainly, but there were a couple times in the interview where he's, he makes a comment along the lines of, well, I think it's difficult to go backwards on this stuff, yeah. um, which I took to mean him talking about, you know, when we were asking, hey, does it matter if a guy really does have low testosterone and he applies for the exemption? Does it matter how he got the low testosterone? Does it matter if it's because he was abusing steroids or if it was a, you know, he was cutting weight the wrong way or if it was just a natural occurrence? Like, do, And his point was it's really hard to figure out why the guy might have low testosterone. And it's also really hard to you know, move to move him backwards from that point um, rather than allowing him to do it and move forward. And that was kind of, I think, the closest thing he came to a a similar point on that. Yeah, I mean, to me, though, it seems like if it's really, really hard to, to figure out why a guy has low testosterone, doesn't that make the case for why it shouldn't be allowed? Like, Hey, you're preaching to the choir here. Yeah, I guess on this podcast, we've always been pretty clear about the fact that I don't believe that a dude should be able to get a testosterone replacement therapy exemption just because he's getting old. You know what I mean? Yeah. To me, that comes dangerously close to undoing the natural cycle of sport in yeah. a way. Like if you if you just say, oh, well, you know, we'll just like Rampage when he admitted that Got he was doggy on style TRT back. and was just like, oh, man, this is great. I yeah. might be able to fight till I'm 45. And it's just like, did you stop and think for even a minute whether or not that's OK? Yeah. Or like whether or not that should be true. Anyway, uh, let's go on to question number two this week, which comes to us from Matt. Matt writes. If you're Andre Pedroneris and you're telling or are you telling Jose Aldo that he's winning after round three, even if you thought that he won those rounds, weren't they too close for you to tell your fighter he's already locked in for a victory? And I would say yes. And yeah. I thought it was weird because not only did Jose Aldo's corner corner tell him that after round three, they also told him that they thought he won all four rounds immediately following yeah. round four, they said which was the round that I thought. Frankie Edgar most clearly won. Yeah, they, that they fight. told him, "Hey, it's three one at the at at the worst, um, maybe four zero." Um, which I mean, I guess some of it is you got to know your fighter and what what he responds to. Maybe Jose Aldo is the kind of guy where he needs the positive reinforcement. Right, yeah, you got to tell him, "Hey, you're winning, man. Good job. Keep it up." Yeah. And other guys might be the ones where you need to tell him, "Look, we got to have this next round. 
uh, even if you think your guy's way up on the scorecards. Different fighters re- react differently to, you know, some guys, you want a bunch of dudes screaming in Portuguese in their face because that's how you get them up off the stool and get them back in a fight. Other dudes need Greg Jackson's and they're talking to you like 10th grade English teacher uh, explaining how you should cite your sources. Different people need different kind of stuff from their corners, so maybe that's part of it. But yeah. I did think that was weird. No, yeah, you're right. It probably does have a lot to do with individual fighter psychology. And I guess I would just say that if I were a corner man, I think I would probably tend to err on the other side, though. You know, I would probably tend to... That's just because you want to cover your ass, though, right? (laughs) You don't want the guy to lose a decision and him turn around and look at you and be like, what the fuck, Dundas? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, we've seen in the past a couple of instances where I think Jackson fighters, we've seen their corner guys tell them that they thought they were way ahead in fights where, as you're watching, they seemed a lot closer and maybe, you know, the, the third and final round was going to be the deciding factor. So it's weird to me, at least, to tell your guy in the corner that, ah, man, you're, you're way up. Like, well, it also seems to me that because even in a title fight, there's five rounds, but especially in a regular fight where it's just three rounds, the rounds are so limited, the judging is so unpredictable. Why even get caught up playing that math game? Why even fuck with it? Why not just say, go out there and win this next round? Yeah. I mean, you, you don't know enough about... How that, it's one thing if it's a boxing match where there's 12 rounds and you know you've already fought 10 and you're kind of thinking about how it might be going, but man, with three or even five rounds, you don't know. Yeah, if we had Herm Edwards here, he would probably tell us the object would be to win every round, so it wouldn't shouldn't really matter. He'd make the point forcefully as we well. Play to win the game. Last question this week comes to us from Joaquim Kalantari. Just ballparking it there on the last <laughs> name, uh, and he writes. An interesting phenomenon was on display several times during the John Fitch versus Damian Maya fight. Between the first and second rounds, Fitch's corner told him something like, hey, he's just going to try to take you down. He doesn't want to fight. Another example was when John Fitch, while helplessly wearing Maya on his back, rolls his eyes and stretches out his arms with the palms facing the ceiling as if to say, what the fuck? This hugging shit is boring as fuck. Doesn't he know that the fans came here to see a, to see a fight? Why doesn't he just stand and bang? Is there a word in English that would describe this phenomenon? If not, would you make one up? And I would say, yeah, there is a word in English to describe that. And the word is irony. <laughs> right? Because as... That well, is, and we hear so many people call things ironic that are not ironic. Right, that yeah. is actually irony. It's like one of the most misused and misunderstood words in the language. I blame Alanis Morissette. Yeah, no shit. Uh, but... When John Fitch goes back to his corner after the first round, and I noticed this too, that, that the ATT guys are kind of like, oh man, this guy doesn't AKA. want to fight. Oh right? yeah, 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 AKA. Uh, he just wants to take you down. My irony alert went, <laughs> went way off at that point because it's also, John Fitch you're talking to, man. Speaking of weird corner advice, though, uh, we were talking about this as we were watching the fight, but there were a couple instances in a couple different fights, and I think this was one where the corner advice kind of boiled down to, you know that stuff he just did to you? All right, get this. What if you went out there and did it to him? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, all right, he's putting you against the fence and keeping you there. You put him against the fence, and it's like, all right. You know how he just punched you in the face? Well, in this next round, we want you to punch him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they did, I think, uh, did do John Fisher uh, a... a, a service by telling him before the third round look you gotta go out there and do something you gotta knock this guy out yeah. you know and maybe it's not super helpful to just be like throw the kitchen sink at him because all right great I'll, I'll just okay i'll just do that then um but they were right that hey man this is this is going badly 
You yeah. got to go out there and well, make and something right before happen. the third round there when Bob Cook was like, all right, fuck the technique. Yes. Throw the game <laughs> plan the out the window pretty much. That's like the exact opposite of Jose Aldo's corner man advice. Yeah. So I guess you get both sides of the coin. Well, and there. that's the one that seems like it's going to be least effective advice for John Fitch. Has anyone ever seen John Fitch fight like he's just saying fuck the technique and going out there and just throwing the kitchen sink at somebody? No, that's like the most antithetical thing to his game. Yeah, and you know, he he's sort of rocking that new hairstyle that seems to be growing in popularity with the MMA fighters where... You know, it just looks like you've foregone a haircut for the last couple of months. Yeah. The Richard Grieco? I thought John Fitch kind of showed up looking like a British general from the 1700s. It's sort of like a, a sweeping kind that's, of comb over and a big beard. That's generous. Going on. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns, uh, advice, free gifts you want to send the podcast, you can hit us up by going to our website, comaineventpodcast.com, and click the link in the right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Round one. Ben, prior to the main event at UFC 156, the broadcast team really went out of its way to... reiterate to us that Jose Aldo is quote right there in the discussion with Anderson Silva and John Jones and George St. Pierre on the pound for pound great list Um, I guess as they so often do sort of trying to interject not so subtly their own storyline which then is free to take hold in the public discussion Uh, And I I would agree that this is a big fight for Jose Aldo in terms of justifying that hype. So I guess my opening question to you is, did he do it for you? You know, he did it for me in the sense that, I mean, when we talk about him being in the discussion of pound for pound, right? I mean, that's kind of a vague term. If you're number four or five, are you in the discussion? And yeah, I guess so. And I'd say Jose Aldo's right there around number four. Right. Uh, so right, right around number four or five on a list that what it actually means has always been totally unclear. Yeah, but you know, going out there, beating Frank Edgar, who had been the, the lightweight champ, and beating him, I thought pretty clearly. You know, I, you can argue about how you apportion the rounds, but I think Jose Aldo wins that fight. Uh, I also think he's one of those guys where when you don't see him for a little while, he's out of action for a little over a year, you kind of forget. Like, oh yeah, in in these flashes, Jose Aldo's capable of some brilliant shit you know he'll oh yeah he can go out there and do some amazing stuff it's just that he's one of those fighters where he doesn't do that amazing stuff all the time he does it here and there uh and if it doesn't finish the guy then he'll kind of rest up and wait for the next opportunity to do that uh he kind of seems to me uh like you know if you're on a long car trip and you're running out of gas and you're thinking well do i stop here or do i have enough gas to make it to the next filling station all right, I'm going to make it to the next one. And it's like he's kind of constantly gla- glancing down at that gauge, looking to see if the light has come on, how low the needle is dropping. Like he's always kind of unsure how much he's got in him. And so it, those great moments come in spasms rather than, you know, just like an Anderson Silva where he's going to go out there and he's going to do that stuff until you're done. Or like a George St. Pierre who is going to dominate, you know, or at least try and dominate every second of every round of, of every fight. He's, he's different. Yeah, we haven't seen him uh, craft the highlight reel finishes that he had, say, in the WEC. When well, he's, I, he's been over Chad Mendes. 
Yeah, but I mean, the stuff he did in the WEC was fucking spellbinding. Yeah, like, that was some in video the WEC, he would have knocked somebody out with that punch off the cage that he landed against Jose, All- or I mean, against uh, Frankie Edgar at the end of their fight. I, 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 like, you know, when he was in the WEC, he had, I think, uh, five or six stoppages in a row to close out his career there. And the footage of the, the double knee that he landed on Cub, Cub Swanson is amazing. Yeah. If you haven't seen him do that. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, even though we haven't seen him, you know, like, have many of those real stunning highlight finishes in the UFC, uh, you know, it, it, it's he's certainly been leaps and bounds ahead of the competition. I think to go out there and hang with Frankie Edgar for five rounds and like you said, uh, win the fight, I think pretty beat him up. Pretty good. It's pretty impressive. And then to consider that, uh, you know, he's been so impressive over his last few fights, beating guys like Uriah Faber, Kenny Florian, Chad Mendez, and now Frankie Edgar. That's really something I think. So, you know, even though we haven't seen him justify the hype in terms of like Anderson Silva style uh, highlights, I, I do think that he's little by little becoming more and more impressive because at this weight, at 145, he's so big, he has such a long reach, he's so powerful and and fast and accurate. It's really kind of incredible to watch him. And like you said, his one flaw to this point has been that he runs out of gas. And even though he did that, in this fight, it certainly wasn't as bad as what we've seen in the past, like during the Mark Hominick fight, where right. it just seemed like he was done like dinner at the end of that fight. You know, this one, I thought, as soon as they got in the cage and you really get a chance to see Aldo and, and Edgar physically next to each other, competing there against each other. If you had told somebody, hey, look at these two dudes fighting. One of them used to be the champion at a higher weight class. No way somebody picks Frankie Edgar right. as that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it makes it, to me, more impressive that Frankie Edgar was the UFC lightweight champ when you see him stacked up there next to the featherweight champ, and he's still at a size disadvantage. Right, yeah, for sure. Um, and I was saying that as we were watching the fights, the first time I noticed it was when we were in Houston for, I think, UFC 132 maybe 136 they were i can't remember what the number was they were both on the card though see this is the problem they wouldn't have they still named them you'd yeah. be like i would know well, yeah, we, was... we were at ufc senseless aggression yeah or whatever ufc frozen impact or and something when we were doing the like on media day when they have the fighters like at this one they essentially had the fighters go down a line of media and uh and answer questions and they had jose aldo and frankie Edgar go one after the other and that was the point where i really noticed Oh, holy shit, Frankie Edgar is much smaller than the featherweight champion. Uh, and, and I think that we should talk a little bit about the future of Frankie Edgar. But before we do that, what about this notion that that Jose Aldo needs to move to lightweight? Because that, you know, having him go up is is a pretty regular topic of discussion. And I mean, if you look at the result of this fight, well, fuck, he just beat the dude who was a former lightweight champion. But at the same time, if he can still make the weight, and it seems like maybe even the weight cutting is getting a little bit easier for him, and maybe he's figuring out how to do it a little bit better. Is there any sense in him moving up, or would you like to see him stay at featherweight? Well, dude, didn't you hear Mike Goldberg? This is the year of super fights. Oh, no, right, yeah. I forgot about that. 2013. So he, he has no choice yeah. but to either move up or down. Here it is, early February of 2013, <laughs> and we're going to declare it the year of super fights. So, you know, take note, champions. Mike Goldberg ha- has just committed you to some super fights. You know, the the super the whole super fight obsession to me, I get it, 
But I also think that we get carried away with it way too quickly. Because then we're just like, as soon as there's a champion, we're like, let's see him fight some other champions. I mean, this is why we have weight classes to begin with. I get it when, you know, we have guys who are really dominant at their weight classes and they're running out of guys to fight and we kind of want to see them against each other. But we're always going to feel like that equation favors the bigger guy. Uh, It seems unfair to the smaller guy. I don't really want to see... Jose Aldo be subject to that pressure, especially if it's going to end up being something where lightweights like Anthony Pettis uh, start dropping to face him, because then, you know, what's the real difference? Right. Yeah. And my argument, I guess, would be that at this point, I feel like the featherweight division is still new enough that it needs Jose Aldo as its champion. Like it needs a guy who is at least regarded as one of the pound for pound best and is a guy who I think has the potential to be, uh, you know, a big time draw for the UFC if he starts to get back to some of those more uh, mind blowing highlights that he had during the WEC. And I mean, at lightweight, it looks to me, at least in the short term, as if you're not going to run out of lightweights. No. Right? At this point, there's not going to be a shortage of dudes for Ben Henderson to fight because even if you start getting to the point where you feel like he's he's fought a lot of the guys in the top 10, new dudes like Ben Henderson and, I mean, not Ben Henderson, but uh, 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 Gilbert Melendez are going to be showing up all the time. You know, TJ Grant is a guy who's yeah. starting to make a name for himself as light at lightweight, and so is uh, Habib... No, Nurmi? No, yeah, Nurmi. That, yeah. He's a guy who's starting to, to get to the point where you might want to think about him cracking into the bottom, into the bottom of the top 10. So, yeah, way easier to start telling some of those guys if they feel like the line is getting too long at lightweight. Hey, you know what? If you could drop 10 pounds, we could sure use you down there at featherweight. Right. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Frankie Edgar. At this point, he's lost three fights in a row now, but... I mean, none of those losses are really the kind of fights that I would say make him look particularly bad. In fact, they've all kind of been the kind of fights that might make you think that he still has as good a chance as anyone at at beating Benson Henderson or Jose Aldo if they fought again. Uh, But what does he do now? I mean, he's already had so many rematches, uh, both against Ben Henderson and Gray Maynard and and, uh, BJ Penn, that it's sort of hard to imagine (laughs) That he that the UFC would give him another one at either weight class at, at against either Jose Aldo or Benson Henderson. So yeah. what does he do? It seems like he's a man without a country. Yeah, well, you know, Dana White said afterwards that he did not want to see him go back up. That it's either stay at featherweight or go down to bantamweight. And Dana White said that he liked the idea of him going down to bantamweight. But then we just get into the situation where the guy goes down, loses. Then you tell him go down some more. Then if he loses there, you know, eventually you get to the point where you just can't drop any more weight. You know, I don't. I don't think he's at that point yet. I think he right. probably still could drop some weight. Uh, and you got to feel for him though, because he is putting on these good fights. But at the same time, he's putting on these great fights where he absorbs a lot of damage, and he kind of waits till the second or third round to really get started, yeah. which you just can't do in right. five round fights. You, you can't wait till the third round and start turning it on. You, you won't win that way. And the more damage he's taking in these fights, I mean, none of these fights have been easy on him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's. He's getting, you know, he's putting on entertaining fights, but he's doing it by uh, being extremely resilient and just keep coming, keep charging. And he is physically taking the worst of pretty much all of them. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of thing that starts to worry you because if you keep just doing that on this descending scale as you're dropping down in weight, uh, and then, you know, if we're sitting here next year this time and he's lost a bantamweight title fight to Dominic Cruz and also gotten beaten up in that one, then what? I mean, yeah. have you, has you just. Run out his career doing that? Bantamweight, flyweight, strawweight. 
as low as we got to go. Money weight. Money weight. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with the idea that he should go down to bantamweight because I think he could definitely get there. Uh, like we talked about earlier in this round, he certainly looked a lot smaller than the featherweight champion. I do think, though, if he moves down yet again to another weight class, he needs to win a fight or yes. two or maybe even three before he gets another title shot because Absolutely. it puts you in a really weird promotional place to have a guy who has just been a champion come down in weight on the heels of back-to-back losses, give him an immediate title shot, and then have him lose because then it's like, oh, well, shit, well, what do you do with the guy now? You know, yeah. There's a ton of awesome fights for him at featherweight. I wouldn't argue with watching him fight Chad Mendez or, or any of those guys, but at the same time, it's like, well, does, what does he do? Does he just stay there and build himself back up until he gets a rematch with Jose Aldo, or does he go down to bantamweight and build himself back up there? So, yeah, the, the situations where they hotshot guys straight into title shots, I think, are a little bit weird. It makes yeah. it feel like, you know, you start at the top. Where do you go, man, if, if you lose? Right. You know, and he was standing there at the end of the fight during the interview after the decision was announced saying, ah, I keep finding myself in these situations. And you wondered, like, when he said it out loud, was that the point when even Frank Edgar realized, wait a minute, maybe there's a reason I keep finding myself in these situations. Because he is a lot of fun to watch. Uh, he's so tough. Uh, got such, such a great nonstop motor. Keeps coming at you. Really resilient. Uh, but something about the way he is fighting these fights means that they're going to be great fights that he's going to lose, it yeah, seems. It definitely put, puts him in a, in a situation where it puts a lot of onus on the judges, which, even though I despise the cliche, that's not always the place you want to be in when you're an MMA fighter because, like we said a week or two ago, man, those fucking judges could do anything. Anything you know? at all. Anyway, I think that's going to wrap up our discussion in round number one. Uh, before we get started with round number two, though, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and kick off Master Tweet Theater because I know... Sir Nigel Longstock is in the house, and he's just chomping at the bit to get going. It's been a couple weeks since we've seen him, so I'm excited to see what he has in store with it, in I'm store not, for us. I'm You're not. I'm no, dreading it. You wouldn't be. Anyway, Master Tweet Theater, that starts right now. And now, Master Tweet Theater. It's that time again. Time for us to welcome in Noted something, something or other, Sir Nigel Longstock, for a segment we like to call Master Tweet Theater. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. Noted actor and theatricalist. I guess, you know, this is a podcast, people can't see it, we might as well talk about it right now. Mustache. A beautiful mustache. I I said mustache. I have named it Golden Glory, sir. Well, here's what I want to know. When you walk around, you're in public, people look at you with that mustache... Does anyone just punch you in the face just because they see that mustache? Because I want to right now. Only those who have seen my film work from the 1970s, sir. And I assure you, it is facial hair independent. <laughs> I believe that. All right, for those of you who don't know how this works, uh, Sir Nigel is going to read us off some tweets from some people in the MMA community, not necessarily fighters. Chad and I are going to try and guess, with our powers of deduction, who the tweeters in question are. Sir Nigel, want to hit us with the first one? <clears throat> Very good. Let us begin. <clears throat> Let's get on with it. <clears throat> Tweet the first. <clears throat> yes, I believe that the U.S. government discovered AIDS and administered it to gays and blacks in the 70s via hep vaccines to kill them off. <laughs> because this is so insane, I got this one. Chad, you got this? 
Yeah, I believe this one has been included more for entertainment purposes than for an actual competition-based reason. Yeah, a tweet this insane, people hear about it, that's War Machine. It is, in fact, War Machine. I'm not even going to bother to guess, I guess. Not even going to get the opportunity. I may have wanted to say Sean McCorkle, for all anyone knows. <laughs> you probably wanted to say Matt Mitrione. However, I think, I think you were the one who made the point, though, uh, that uh, if you had told us beforehand that War Machine had a tweet that included phrase, uh, the blacks and gays, or whatever is in that tweet, that this is actually one of the least offensive ways he could have used it. Yeah, well, at least, you know, he's not going to have to issue an apology or anything, because he's just a loose cannon at this point, a lone wolf out there on his own. Oh, yeah. No, if you ask for, if you were expecting War Machine to hold himself to any standards of decency, it is you who should apologize to him. There's no War Machine code of conduct. (laughs) No. Sir Nigel? Mm. Also, if this information is true, this is an extremely dangerous way for War Machine to publicize it. (laughs) Tweet the second. Being totally sober and still not knowing where I parked, dot, dot, dot. That, uh, that one sounds to me like the poet Philip Baroni. I feel like that that might be, like, this seems like maybe playing possum here, trying to just get me to go ahead and guess Poet Philip Brony too early. But damn it, that seems like a work of the poet, doesn't it? Uh, That does, because of its shortness, you know, the Mm -hmm. poet favors short tweets a lot of the time. I guess, though, you already said that, so I'm going to go with... mm, I'm going to go with recent UFC entrant Rashad Evans, who fought this past weekend. Oh, wow. Okay. Both reasonable guesses. Both of you fished in by the wilds of Sir Nigel. It is neither the poet Philip Baroni nor Rashad Evans. It is, in fact, Ian McCall. Oh, you uh, son of a bitch. Uncle Creepy himself. Well, I guess I I can't say that's a shock, really. That seems like something. No, it, it makes sense, although this is, I believe, Ian McCall's first appearance in Master Tweet Theater. I think you're right. It is, sir. All right. Also Moving right along. Fantastic mustache, if you like that sort of thing. Yeah, big <laughs> if. Big if. Tweet the third. Driving by myself, but if I had panties on, I'd take them off. Whoa, that's just weird. I, you know, my my gut says Ariane Celeste. Really? My head says Matt Mitrione. Your guy, Matt Mitrione. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of kind of made a, a pact with myself not to guess Mitrione anymore since it <laughs> so oftentimes leads me astray. Uh, boy, that is a, that's another tough one. I'm going to go with Matt Mitrione. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Once again, we violate our agreements with ourselves. It is not Matt Mitrione. <laughs> it is Connor Hune or possibly Hine. No, you're, you're at the first time, I Hune? think. Hune? Yeah, really? I think so. I thought perhaps it would be like the German. <laughs> well... I think uh, if he's trying to make a name for himself with getting on Master Tweet Theater here, that's a pretty good tweet to do it with. Because that's going to give us all a lot to think about. Tweet the fourth. This is an exciting one. Tweet the fourth. Back to home. Thank you, everyone, that send good viber for me. Voltando pra casa. Obrigado a todos que dot, dot, dot. I'm going to guess Jose Aldo. Well, I'm going to guess Bigfoot Silva. Oh, wow, okay. I think those are both good guesses. 
Both fine guesses, only one of them much more fine than the other. It is Bigfoot Silver. Oh, what? Oh, what? It. And I learned from his Twitter tr- profile that his full name is Antonio Pizau Silva. Yes. It's wonderful. Wonderful middle name. Much better than Bigfoot. <laughs> Just call him Pizau. Yeah, I think there's probably a reason why Bigfoot is the name that has taken hold. What you think? I didn't even know Bigfoot Silva had a Twitter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, now my follow Friday is taken care of. <laughs> it is extremely Portuguese. I must warn you in advance. <clears throat> tweet the Fifth is a two-part tweet, and I will read them in chronological order. Oh, Jesus. <clears throat> tweet the Fifth Part A. Are you ready? Tweet the Fifth Part B. Arg. Um, this has got to be drunk best. Bruce Buffer. <laughs> That's a good guess. Uh, did I guess the poet Philip Baroni already, or was that you? That was me. I'm gonna go poet Philip Baroni here because of both, again, the shortness of the tweets and sort of the nonsensical nature of the part one and part A, part B. Part yeah, two, I want to know whatever before you answer and tell us who this was. I want to know how you knew that these tweets were supposed to be connected. Well, it's funny you should ask, <laughs> sir, and I believe the answer can be found in recent history. Oh. <clears throat> the tweeter in question is Alistair Overeem, oh. the first tweet being issued shortly before his fight and the second issued shortly after. Wait, so you're telling me that after Alistair Overeem got knocked the fuck out by Bigfoot Pazow... Pazow! Uh, <laughs> you're telling me that then he took to his Twitter and tweeted ARG? His response is ARG! A-R-G exclamation point. Huh. Does that mean something else in the Netherlands? No, I think it means I have been knocked out by a man with a giant body. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess maybe that, that kind of uh, lightens me up a little bit toward over him to know that he has enough of a sense of humor to get on there and, and get after it with an ARG. What do you think, Chad? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, now I feel... I feel dumb because I knew I I guess I knew that Overeem had tweeted "Are you ready?" before his fight. I just didn't connect it with him tweeting "Arg" after it. And I guess we know the answer to the question at least for Overeem was no, not ready. Yeah, not no. ready to go three rounds. No. <laughs> we were ready. Um, no, it's. I think it could become a catchphrase for him, like when Kathy says "Ack." <laughs> <laughs> I know you like that. You're a big Kathy fan. Huge Kathy. Well, that concludes Master Tweet Theater for this week. Sir Nigel, what do you got going on? Well, sir, I will be in rehearsals for my new show, The Ray Lewis Story. And what role do you play in The Ray Lewis Story? I play God, an aging super being who is forced to choose between his prohibition against killing and his love of airtight defense. (laughs) Well... Unlike most of your works, I'm actually looking forward to this one. Oh, yes. The special effects are amazing. Just please don't have it be another one of those things where I show up and then I realize it's an all-nude review. Because that... You really should... An all-nude review. Damn it. Well, at least I asked this time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Good day, sir. Round two. Chad, in heavyweight action at UFC 156, Alistair Overeem showed up with what he, for what he declared would be a, quote, warm-up fight against Antonio Bigfoot Silva, and in warming up, got knocked the fuck out. Indeed, sir. Worth the price of admission alone. Okay, I wrote about this, I wrote a column about this on Sunday, and I don't want to say that it felt like 
Like, I was glad to see Overeem get knocked out because, you know, we're journalists and all that. I don't really have a, a preference for winners or losers here. Well, I just said it was glorious. I'm like a price of admission, so you might as well, man. I don't know well, why Well, there wouldn't. is something weirdly satisfying, though, about a guy who comes in, is acting kind of arrogant and cocky about the situation. The other guy is like, hey, you should show me at least a, a, a modicum of respect. Right. He declines to uh, and then ends up getting knocked out in the last round. I mean, I, when we were yeah. watching it, I think you jumped up out of your seat well, when that I happened. Just put, I put my arms up. I didn't jump out of my seat. <laughs> I think I'm you a, jumped I'm up. I'm a father. I wouldn't <laughs> succumb to such an outpouring of emotion. I agree with you, though. It was satisfying, and I think for two reasons. First, because, like you said, Overeem, not only did he act like a jerk toward Bigfoot during the lead-up to this fight, he kind of like, acted like an a-hole the whole week to everybody, it seemed like. Uh, he was Here's a guy who was just coming off suspension, said that he wanted... To, Not a suspension. Oh, right, a non-licensing. <laughs> well, that's one of the things, though. He, he uh, you know, he's returning from this state-mandated vacation, yeah. <laughs> and he claims that he wants to clear his name on the PEDs issue and prove that he's a clean fighter, and yet he shows up to this media day, and pretty much all of the interactions that I saw from him with the media, he just looked surly and like he didn't want to be there. I know that he cut short an interview with a reporter from SportsIllustrated.com who asked him if he had ever knowingly taken performance-enhancing drugs. He corrected SureDog.com in, an interview, in a video interview that I watched where they referred to it, his time off as a suspension, and he said, I'd like to correct you on one fact. It was a non-licensing. As if, A, that's a thing, and B, like that makes it any fucking better that the Nevada State yeah. Athletic Commission... Motherfucker, like, could like, you fight? Would they let you fight? Yeah. If you showed up to fight, would they say, okay, no? And they said there was a time period during which you could not fight? That's a suspension, goddammit. Right. So it was kind of like an audacious and, in my opinion, wrong-headed PR move for a guy who claimed that he wanted to clear his name. So I would say that, yeah, not only was he a jerk to Bigfoot, called him a walking tar target or something like that, but he was also surly to the media. So it was somewhat satisfying to see him get knocked out. But the other reason that I felt like it was satisfying, and, and I tweeted this right after the fight, was that as media members, I think we were all kind of sitting around trying to figure out how we were going to deal with an Alistair Overeem number one contendership and the possibility of an Alistair Overeem uh, title reign fairly, but at, at the same time accurately, because the sad fact of the matter is that the predominant storyline of Alistair Overeem's MMA career is performance enhancing drugs. Not because we want it to be, because God knows as media members, we would love to be able to talk about this dude with the belief that he's he's a clean fighter and pure. And because if he is, he's a fucking stupendous talent. But if you don't think that you have to at least be a little bit suspicious after witnessing the complete full body physical rebirth that this guy had in his late 20s. If you don't think that you have to be a little bit suspicious or at least wonder what he's up to when no one else is watching him, then you essentially haven't been paying attention to the dominant storyline of professional athletics over the last decade. And this only feeds into that storyline, though, because now that he knows he's being watched a little closer, coming off his non-licensing, uh, and then he shows up, looks physically different. I mean, still looks like a huge dude and like, you know, like a dude who works out a lot, but definitely doesn't look quite as comic bookish. Doesn't right. look quite as chiseled. There are noticeable physical differences when you compare him side by side, as all many photos floating around the internet did. If you compare him at the weigh-ins for the Brock Lesnar fight, 
uh, and then him and the weigh-ins for this fight, you can see a definite difference. And he shows up looking different and loses. Yeah. It, then it only feeds into this narrative that he reinvented himself through PEDs. Because you go back and you look at that period when he was a light heavyweight back in Pride. And, you know, he was a good fighter, but, you know, he, he was... He got to a point there where he was losing more than he was winning. Then suddenly he goes up to heavyweight uh, and starts wrecking people. Now he comes back, uh, looks like maybe he had been forced to get clean, and loses. So it, it creates this narrative that, hey, he, he is a, a PED fighter, and without it, he's not nearly as good. Right. Yeah, I mean, that narrative is just there. And unfortunately for him, he's never going to be able to take away the suspicion that lingers over that you know, several year period that he between the, you know, I, I think the most damning period for him is the period between winning the strike force heavyweight championship where he, I believe he beat Paul Buentello and then With knees to the body, I believe. And then he goes to Europe and fights exclusively in Europe in various MMA organizations and also in K one where he wins the K one world grand prix, but in an environment in Europe and Japan where the drug testing is unknown to us, Right. And so he's never going to be able to clear his name in terms of the suspicion that will linger around that period of his career, because frankly, you just can't go back and change the past. Now that he's had this loss, I don't know, man, maybe it gives him an opportunity to sort of start fresh and do what he should have done a long time ago and sign up for independent drug testing through one of the independent and respected drug testing agencies that, that exist in, in sports today, because to this point, it's kind of seemed like the whole drug issue hasn't really bothered him. Like that's been his attitude. Even if it bothers him privately, I know when you talked to him the week before the fight, he said, Oh, I can definitely live with it. If I never prove to people that I'm clean, Yeah, which is just sort of like the worst possible thing you could say in that position. Well, and because that's what, you know, and when I talk to him in fairness, when I talk to him about, uh, you know, his testing issues and the, the non-licensed period of his career, uh, he was not surly about it. He 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 talked about it pretty openly. I was a little bit surprised, uh, and you know he didn't even seem to be trying to hustle me along to a different topic. So uh, he was at least pretty good about it when I talked to him. But then I yeah I asked him you know what if because he he made a comment that I'm not trying to change these people's minds. Some of them are just not going to like me. Some of them are not going to believe me. Fine. And I said, well, what if you you know you do become the UFC heavyweight champion, and there are still like you know there's a vocal segment of fans out there who don't believe that you're competing clean and who don't believe that it's legitimate. I mean, that seems to me like whatever you might say publicly, that would be hard to live with if you're a fighter. Yeah. If nobody regards your your title reign as legitimate, uh, he said he would have absolutely no problem with it. I don't know, you know that that seems like a really strange statement to me. Well, the weirdest part is if these guys are clean then they're getting the worst possible public relations advice of all time. Because if you're clean, do by all means sign up and take the tests from, uh, you know, the world anti-doping agency or somebody, because that's the only thing that's going to change people's minds because that kind of like surprise Olympic style testing is the only thing that is going to change all of the people who believe that he's a performance enhancing drugs users minds. And if he's not, then dear God, by all means, change those people's minds. Yeah. For ch- you know, and in my experience, the dudes who really are totally clean are the ones who are going to get indignant about it. Uh, right. If you even bring it up or the ones who are going to bring it up themselves. It's like, it's uh, like in homicide where David Simon writes about if you put an innocent guy in the interrogation room, he freaks out and like tries to break out and cries and throws <laughs> his chair. And if you put a guilty guy in there, he goes to sleep. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like I think I've seen that before on an episode of First 48 
where it, all this circumstantial evidence pointed to this dude as the murderer. And then when the cops go hard on him and be like, we know you're the murderer, the dude freaks out and starts yelling at him and swearing at the cops and banging on the table. And you're like, whoa, all right. And you know, it turns out that this guy, you know, more evidence that they found later exonerated him. He did not do it. Somebody else had done it. Meanwhile, you also seen in the first 48, the dudes who, when the cops say, look, we know you shot her, just tell us. And the guy's response is, I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that dude did it. Yeah. You know, so it, if, if you are totally clean, I would think you would go about it completely differently. But this has got to be the worst possible outcome for Alistair Overeem, though, to show up, to look different, and then to lose to yeah. a guy he probably shouldn't have lost to. I mean, you look at those first two rounds. Uh, even a you know less explosive, more mediocre Alistair Overeem is getting the better of Bigfoot Silva. Seemed like yeah. he should totally win that yeah, fight. Absolutely. When Bigfoot's corner sitting there after the second round, being like, "He's done. You're killing him." Yeah. I, that's what I was kind of like. Okay, come on, guys. Let's don't do this to the poor guy. Yeah. Well, you know, and then the he goes out there and he knocks him out. Let's use the last couple of minutes we've got left in this round to talk about Bigfoot Silva because I too wrote a column about this fight for ESPN.com as we're recording this. I haven't published it yet kind of taking their sweet time on it if you don't mind me saying (laughs) you seem pleased about that But at this point it seems like bigfoot silva is the worst patsy in mixed martial arts because if you look at this guy's last five fights there ain't a single one of them where you can reasonably assume that the promoter wanted him to win yeah because he fights fedor in the first round of the strike force grand prix where the entire narrative at that point was that strike force wanted to set up a pay-per-view between overeem and fedor Mm -hmm. beats fedor then in the semifinals, after the entire bracket has gone kablooey, just like we all knew that it would, he gets picked to fight fucking Daniel Cormier, who is the alternate that turned out to be the chosen one and went on to win the whole thing. And the dude shows up in the UFC where his fight bookings are even less auspicious. And he fights, who did he fight? He fought Travis Brown. He fought Cain Velasquez. He fought Cain Velasquez in Cain Velasquez's comeback fight after losing the title of Junior Dos Santos. Then he fights Travis Brown in a fight that clearly was supposed to put Travis Brown on the heavyweight map. And then he shows up as the guy who's supposed to set the fucking table for Alistair Overeem to be the number one contender for the heavyweight title. And so it seems like, you know, Bigfoot looked mad at the end of the fight. He's yelling at Alistair Overeem. Yeah, Herb well, Dean man. saved Alistair Overeem's life. I would be mad too if, A, this dude that I'm about to fight acted like a dick to me the whole week. And it was kind of starting to seem like in my career, I was the dude that promoters called when they wanted me to lose to their superstar. Except that, you know, more often than not, he doesn't lose. He's the worst patsy in the game, man. <laughs> He's a terrible fall guy. He keeps winning these fights. And you can understand why they think that it's going to be... Because he doesn't seem like that athletically gifted. He doesn't seem like he's that great at any one thing. But he's really big and scary looking. So it's like, all right, we'll have this dude beat up the big scary looking giant. And then that'll seem impressive to people. Except for when the big scary looking giant finds a way to win. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, well, let's do... Are are you fucking kidding me's for this week? And then we'll uh, segue into the final round for for this week's show. Ben, what do you got for us this week for your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? This week, the payout information, the, at least the disclosed payouts for UFC 156 uh, just came out today. We see that Rashad Evans, who showed up for his fight with Antonio Hogerio Nogueira and did very, very little over the course of 15 minutes, got paid 300 grand to go out there and basically touch his palm to Noguera's jab for three rounds. You fucking kidding me, Rashad? You're getting 300 grand and that's what you're going to do? Man, come on, you, you're better than that. Go out there and do something, man. He's just, he's like a guy, I remember a quarterback on my high school football team. Oh, God, here we go. Who, when he would run with the ball, which he never should have done, 
he would do this thing with his shoulders, like like he was gonna juke you, but that he never did it. He'd just do the thing with his shoulders and run straight ahead, and it was terrible. And that's what Rashad Evans did for three rounds. A bunch of fainting, like he's just getting ready, just getting ready to launch an attack. And no, it never came. And for that, he made 300 grand. You fucking kidding me, Rashad? You fucking kidding me? Well, I better do my are you fucking kidding me because I know that we're one step away from having to sit down and watch Ben Volks' high school football highlight tape. It's on VHS, so we got to find someone with, with, with a player, but it's going to be awesome. Uh, this week, my are you fucking kidding me is, are you fucking kidding me, Corn Nuts? Your new tagline is the only brand with kernels big enough to be inside the octagon. <laughs> so what you're telling me with your company slogan is that when I'm eating your product, I'm essentially eating balls. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me, Corn Nuts? Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number two this week. We'll be back in just a flash with round number three. Three. Well, Ben, the UFC is all but forcing us this week to break one of our solemn vows on the podcast because anybody who's been with us since episode number one knows that we made a, a guarantee at the beginning of the show that we would not make fight picks and that we would not spend a lot of time talking about fighter rankings top 10 lists and the spirit of that rule was to prevent us from doing the thing that that you hear on on other mma shows where they debate who's the top pound for pound fighter in the world for an hour or they spend an hour being like hey the strike force shows this weekend we're gonna go through every single fight on the card and make our fight picks essentially Derek brunson up first <laughs> essentially it was to push ourselves to try to do somewhat new and interesting stuff but this week the ufc has announced that it is going to start uh, cultivating official rankings for its fighters. And this is an idea that I guess from my, you know, survey of the internets seems to have piqued a lot of attention from the people, the great people of mixed martial arts. So I suppose we're going to spend this round talking about it. So let me just, I'll tell you what is the most problematic, or at least one of the things that's problematic about it for me. And then, and then, I'll, I'll give you your shot because to me, it seems like if the idea is to create some kind of consensus ranking system that the media should do that on its own, the media should create a consensus ranking system that it owns and should tell the UFC, Hey, you know, this thing exists. You guys are free to utilize it if you like, but for independent media members to essentially I guess, create content that the UFC then owns. I guess I don't understand why anybody would do that. And also uh, to, to create a list that only includes UFC fighters to me is also very problematic. But I guess my first thought on it, aside from it being a conflict of interest, I guess, is just why would we want to create one more thing about this sport that the UFC owns? You know, I agree with you that there's... There would be no problem, I think, if the media, if we all got together, if, for instance, we had some kind of MMA media association that got together and said, all right, here are some rankings that we all have input on. Uh, here it is. The UFC can then use it if they want to or not. Kind of like, you know, an AP poll kind of thing uh, for MMA. Uh, and, you know, we just do it. You can use it or you can not use it, whatever. Um that seems like it would be fine to me. I could even see maybe if this UFC thing, I think a lot of 
the thing people are worried about is transparency. Right. Like if everybody just gets on there on some website, sends in their rankings to the UFC, and then the UFC spits out some numbers at the end, how do you know exactly how they arrived at these numbers? Right. And how do you know how they arrived at who they were going to let pick uh, who they're going to let uh, submit rankings. Right. You know you know how the UFC can be sometimes with media members that it's angry at and then it's kind of a scorched earth policy toward those people. So like those kinds of things I think are are the most worrisome part. But it, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. It's just, yeah, why would we in the media want to do that? Right. And I mean, more to your point, we know that you're going to have a situation where old OGs of the MMA media circuit like Josh Gross and Loretta Hunt are certainly not going to be extended invites to vote. And I know that Kevin Ioli over at Yahoo has already said he's not going to vote. So it's like, man, if those guys aren't voting, like you already you start from a uh, from a place of 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 a problem if those guys aren't aren't contributing, I think. And to me, well, here's the thing. One of the, to me, one of the most problematic things about this and for anybody who's listened to the podcast at all in the past will probably know that I think rankings are stupid. Yeah, because. Rankings are meaningless and in a big picture standpoint, just way too simplistic to be very meaningful in a sport as complex and nuanced as MMA. So if you start with that as your baseline, that rankings are stupid, and then add to the equation that the UFC has already been upfront about the fact that it's not really going to use these rankings for anything. You know, the rankings, it's not going to be tied to them. Right. The rankings are in no way going to impact the UFC's matchmaking. They're not going to mean anything substantive within the company. The UFC is just going to use them to put them on its website and talk about them during its broadcasts. Again, using content that the media apparently has created for the UFC for free and for nothing at all in return. Then what's the point? And on top of that, if you add to that equation... From again, from the baseline that rankings are stupid, that these particular rankings are only going to include UFC fighters, and that in creating them, we're going to be asked to ignore guys like Pat Curran and Michael Chandler right. and Eddie Alvarez and Ben Askren and maybe even Muhammad Lawal someday. Then they become even more meaningless than regular rankings because how do you then? provide any utility with these rankings are you going to tell me that donald cerrone is the number seven lightweight in the world on a list that doesn't include michael chandler yeah so well you know and it yeah it becomes just like kind of a broadcast talking point i mean i want to believe that that this springs from the right impulse um something to say hey we understand that casual fans or people trying to trying to wrap their heads around this whole MMA stuff. But rankings can, might make things easier for them to understand. Not that I want to cut you off, but if you're talking about casual fans, then these rankings just minimize fighters who fight in Bellator even more because right. casual fans aren't going to know what they are. Right. They're going to look at these rankings that only include UFC fighters and be like, oh, well, these are the best fighters the in UFC the world. UFC has all the top 10 guys in every single division. Yeah, Imagine that. Yeah, no, that's true. But, you know, I can understand, you know, if that is part of the impulse to be like, we want to be able to give regular sports fans, the kind of thing they can understand, like, hey, who's in first place and how many games back are you? You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, that to me doesn't seem like such a bad impulse. Also, you know, if there were, if you were going to use the rankings more as like a matchmaking guide, then getting outside input could be seen as a response to a lot of the shit the USC is having to eat right now about some of its matchmaking. Uh, you know, you could definitely look at that, the way that trend developed and the, all, all the, the 
backlash against the UFC for making some of these, especially at the top of these divisions, these kind of for convenience sake fights, and and then look at the UFC's call for rankings and be like, okay, look, they're trying to do something about it, and which is commendable. I just kind of wonder, especially if Dana White's going to say, hey, we want you guys to do these rankings, but we're going to do whatever the fuck we want to anyway. Uh, you know, then why? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that it would be positive for some MMA organization, <clears throat> Bellator, to have official rankings that it utilized to actually make fights because then you could use your rankings and be like, look, we have the best fight, the best over here all the time. We don't do these crazy interweight division matchups that are clearly designed just to make money at the expense of the comp the competitive aspect of the sport. But you know, that's not what we have here. We have this list that is going to exist just so Mike Goldberg can say, here comes so-and-so the number four welterweight in the world, or I'm sorry, the number four welterweight in the world is so-and-so, as Mike <laughs> Goldberg would say. Well, what I wonder is, if the UFC wants rankings, why not just do it yourself? Or if you get, you know, you got Fight Metric working for you, they're keeping some stats. I think Fight Metric has some rankings on their site, right? Like, yeah. why not just do your own rankings and say, these are our rankings, yes, and these are the absolutely. rankings we hold ourselves accountable to as our own? You bring up a very good point, that right now, in the landscape of this sport, there would clearly be nothing stopping from the UFC, the UFC from just saying, well, here's our top ten. Yeah. Because they do that kind of shit all the time. Like, yeah. why would they not just do that? Well, and, you know, this is going to be something, if this is some, if this becomes a thing, if this really takes off and, and becomes, like, so far it seems like uh, people aren't really sure what to make of this. Yeah. Uh, but this would be a useful negotiating uh, like piece of information for managers. If, you know, if you've got a guy who you don't really know where he stands uh, and then the UFC puts a number on where he stands and, you know, hey, now he's in the top 10. You know, that's that's a good negotiating position to be in when it comes time for to talk contract. You know, so that stuff seems like it does have the power to affect people's lives in one way or another. Uh, it just seems like kind of a a sudden lurching way to go about it, especially for Dana White to just kind of say during a uh, like a post press conference media scrum, like, hey, by the way, we're doing rankings and you guys are doing them. And it's kind of like, well, oh, oh, wow. all right. Wow, okay. Well, hey, this is kind of the first I heard about that. Yeah, and again, I don't know if and it's... I hate that we're even talking about rankings this fucking much on the podcast. Right. And hey, you know, I'll, t I'll just say this. Over at ESPN.com, we got all the rankings you could ever possibly want, <laughs> man. And we update them and at a crazy rate. We update them after every single fight. So if the UFC wants them, shit, dude, they're already there. You can just go use them as far as I'm concerned. Not that I speak for ESPN.com. Statements made on this podcast <laughs> do not reflect on ESPN.com. Anyway, all right. Well, let's do uh, just saying stuff, I guess, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, do you want to go first? Like, what's the – I guess you went first. I went first. You, you um, go first. This week, I'm just saying, so, UFC, Randy Couture is a scumbag now, huh? Mm-hmm. I mean, you only spent the last 12 years mythologizing this guy, telling us he's your hero, telling us he's the greatest light heavyweight of, of all time, one of the best of all time in any weight class. And then he suddenly goes and works for the competition, and now he's not a man anymore, I guess. <laughs> well, I think personally that this is the tipping point. I mean, the UFC can only tell us that so many journalists are dirty and that so many television executives are stupid, and that so many labor unions are gangsters, and that so many fighters are scumbags before we all start to notice the one common denominator in these relationships. 
And it might be that we start to realize that maybe what the UFC says about other people says more about the UFC than it does about other people. I'm just saying. Just saying. I'm just saying that after UFC 156, we heard from Dana White that uh, Anthony Pettis had texted him saying how much he wanted to drop down to featherweight and fight Jose Aldo. Now, I'm not saying that that didn't happen. Uh, I am, however, just saying that if you're Anthony Pettis and you feel like you're, you're finally in a really good position uh, as far as the lightweight title picture goes, it seems odd that you would then abdicate that position by volunteering to go down a weight class uh, and fight the champion there. I'm just saying maybe somebody, somebody gave him that suggestion that this would be a good way to get a title fight a lot quicker uh, and to maximize his exposure from a very recent high-profile win over Donald Cowboy Cerrone by vaulting himself straight into another title fight uh, and keeping his name in the headlines. I'm just saying, maybe, maybe that wasn't 100% Anthony Pettis' idea. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Seems awfully convenient, doesn't it? Well, if it was Anthony Pettis' idea, if he acted alone on this and said, hey, you know what, I'll just volunteer to go down to featherweight and then I'll get a title fight right away while people are still thinking about my, my big win over Cerrone, then... God damn it, Anthony Pettis is a lot more savvy than I give him credit That's for. Smart like, as that, shit. That right is there. pretty fucking smart. I would like to see the footage of Dana White being like, "Oh man, Anthony Anthony Pettis has been texting me all night, but uh, my phone ran out of battery, so I yeah. can't show you guys. <laughs> Otherwise, I totally would." He texted me so much, my phone died. You believe that? Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast, during which we continue to break down the comings and goings in the worlds of mixed martial arts. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from MMA Junkie and USA Today. But for this week, that's our show. We're done. We're through. We're out. Chad, you know what I tell people about you when they ask? That I'm a hand model and I live in Canada? I say, no one is more of a man than Chad Dundas when the mics are on in the podcast, and no one is less of a man as soon as the mics go off. That's what I say. I mean, I'm going to die.